You're listening to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. My dad has had big conversations with other people around the world and here in Geneva. He loves it and he's all crazy about it. Remember to have fun listening to it, the Rodolfo Rivas Project. And for some organizations, it's easier than others. Because some organizations can go, for example, into, into schools. If you're, if you're in the software industry and you want to help um, grow the ability to code, for example, you can engage with the whole education systems. If you're in the alcohol industry, you can't do that for very good, for very good reasons. Um, but there's a question of the, of the age at which they start, because I think what you're talking about is that there's, there's just some people who, who never even come onto the agenda of organizations because they never even think about going into Daughter. the university studies that would enable them to get that to get their next job. So there's engaging with with um, people in areas where you're struggling to find young talent, for example. So whether that's engaging with schools or universities or, or whatever. Most organizations would say that their their graduate schemes are designed to do exactly what you're what you're saying which is to find people who haven't got life experience who haven't got lots of of job skills but have the the willingness and the potential to learn and to give them an experience of a whole range of different parts of the organization so that they can find where they where they fit that was gavin weeks i am rodolfo rivas and this is my podcast welcome to it during my recent trip to oxford university for a chief of staff certification at its world-renowned business school, I had the opportunity to meet Gavin. As part of the program, he delivered an insightful lecture on sustaining energy at work. I found the lecture very useful, and I thought we could talk more about it, and as well as other topics, in a wide-ranging conversation covering psychology, grit, sports, and talent, to name just a few. Gavin is a clinically trained psychologist who consults with individuals, teams, and organizations on leadership and behavior change. Gavin draws on a professional background in clinical and sports psychology to build performance and understand and overcome barriers to change. He has a doctorate in clinical psychology and a master's of science in neuropsychology. Subscribe, you won't regret it, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation. The Rodolfo Rivas Project is available on all major platforms or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Please help by spreading the word, recommending us to your friends or enemies. A small act like liking, subscribing, and or reviewing is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Gavin, uh, thank you for agreeing to talk to me. I'm really excited about our conversation. Thank you for having me. We're here uh, at Oxford, where you you are an associate fellow. That's right. Yeah. So we had a session two, uh, three days ago, and it really it really gave me a lot to think about. So I want to talk a bit about that, but first I want to talk a bit about you. So you are where are you from? I am from a, well, I was, I was born and grew up in a place called Hounslow, which is in the west of London. Um, and then I moved into um, Surrey in 
about the age of 10, I think. And then I've, I've always grown up relatively close to, to London, um, worked, though I've had roles that have taken me into different parts of the world, always studied, lived and, um, and worked near to London. And um, how has that like, influenced your worldview, living around like, one of the largest cities in the world? Um, goodness, in, probably in many more ways than I can, than I can recognize, even though I'm a psychologist who thinks about beliefs <laughs> and, world, and worldviews. Um, the, the first thing, and I guess it informs my values as much as anything, is that the, the part of London where, where, or West London where I first went to school, and in fact my mum is still a teacher in that, in that same school, 45 years later I think, um, was very, very diverse. So we had a class of about 36 kids, and if I remember rightly, probably 25 of them weren't born in, in the UK. Okay. Um, so we had, it, it was normal for me to have kids who were from Asia, different parts of Asia, Africa, region, different regions of Africa, the um, Saudi Arabia, I think, um, even some some children from China, I think, in that, in that school. It was a, it was a normal um, state school in a really interesting and mixed area of the, of the country. So I just had a, an expectation. For me, the, the conversation about diversity in this country, for example, is so obvious yeah. because I've always experienced a, a world that was, was diverse. And then I moved when I was when I went to secondary school, which in this country is is at eleven. I moved to a um, a part of Surrey, so the the home what we call the home counties. Um, again, a normal a normal state school, but it was not a particularly well. It was not a diverse school. I think there was two there was two children in the school who were from Africa and a, and a couple whose parents originated from India. So that for me was actually a very strange experience. At, at that age, you were able to like tell the difference. It's like, oh, maybe this is not so diverse. And how well, did... I, I would never have had the language to, to describe it. Yeah. But it didn't. It didn't feel like my schools up until that age. It felt. It felt different. It didn't feel. It didn't feel either bad or good. But it felt different. Yeah. I am. I am living in Geneva, and uh, in the school where my daughters go to it's also pretty diverse it's in geneva it's in the middle in the middle of the city but in her class there's kids from everywhere and i i actually think about this a lot because for her similar to what you were saying this is natural she thinks that the world is like this and the world is not like this i just uh, i wonder how this will affect her later on maybe she'll have expectations and she'll see that that's not how it is well she she will have a set of expectations about what the world's, world's like. And I guess in, in Geneva, part of her experience will be also a world where people are quite well off. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, know there's, I know there's economic diversity in Switzerland, of course, but not in the same way as other major cities around the, around the world. So okay. she'll have an expectation of a, a certain type of, of diversity, but perhaps economically, her cohort of kids are, and friends are in many ways quite, quite
quite privileged. And this is, well, thank you for raising this because this is also something I think a lot about. Um, if you are raised in a privileged environment, how do you develop grit? Wow. Because like, I, I don't come, I mean, I, I would say I'm like lower middle class in Mexico, but facing obstacles when I was growing up, I think that's the reason why I developed like a, what you would call grit. And I'm constantly struggling to, because it's like a balance. You want your kids to have a better life, but you also don't want to remove the opportunity of them to develop character. How do you do that? Well, so of course, grit is, and I know we haven't really got into professional experiences, but I'm a, I'm a psychologist and a clinical psychologist yeah. by, by background. So for me, there's the way that we use the word grit just in daily life. Okay. And there's an association of the word grit with the work of, a, of another academic called Angela Duckworth. Yeah. Um, who wrote a book called, called Grit. Now she um, may very likely dispute what I'm going to say, but from my understanding, grit is a, is a combination of conscientiousness, which is, a, which is one of the big, what they call the big five personality traits, um, meaning that we take the things that we've committed to do seriously, that we follow through on the things that we've, that we've committed to do, that we complete stuff. So conscientiousness on the one hand, and passion on the other hand, finding something that you really, that you really like. So in, in her thinking, grit is not just something which you either have or you don't have, it but is a, a function of the relationship between like an individual and their environment that they live in. So you could find that, you could find passion and have conscientiousness in a background that was not privileged, and you could find that in a place where there's lots of privilege. So I happen to live um, very close to probably one of the world's most famous schools, Eton, Eton College. Um, and I have some friends who teach there. But there are some, some young boys, young men in that school, who, to use your term, would be fantastically gritty. They work hard, they take their work seriously. They, they found topics that they love, that they feel really energized and excited by. And they are, to all extents and purposes, very privileged. Yeah. You would find children who don't have that privilege, but who have found something that they've, they really love to do, they feel very excited by, and have that personality trait of conscientiousness. So can you have, there's some things that you can, that you can develop, helping kids to find something that really matters to them, helping kids to make a connection between their, the, the work they have to do at school and the things that they're interested in outside of school. And then there are some things that seem to be less easy to develop. Conscientiousness is, a, is a, what we think of as a personality trait um, that some people are at the extremes of. So either very, very driven and conscientiousness or very, very, you know, we might say they're very lazy. Yeah. And most of us are somewhere in between those, those poles. And most of us will find that there are, there are things that we do where we really follow through. We really take very seriously. And there are things that we do that if nobody was going to tap us on the shoulder and ask us if they're done, 
we'd probably prefer to avoid. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And actually, I was referring to Angela's uh, book, but I think that the way that you explain it like really makes sense and puts it a bit into perspective. But you also mentioned that you're... Let's talk about your career. Why did you decide to... Was it something that you saw at home? How were you influenced to go into clinical psychology? So... I have two parents who are both teachers. Yeah. So in, in my family, education was very important. Um, but for whatever reason, my parents' job, being a, being a teacher, never really appealed to me. Um, and then I had a mum. My mum always used to tell us to become a doctor. Um, she, would, she would explain why. Um, <laughs> perhaps because she liked to watch... Uh, medical dramas on, on TV. <laughs> um, but she, they, the, my, my parents wanted us to, I have two sisters, to have, have careers that would be you know, fulfilling, that, made the, made, that, that enabled us to, to be well educated. Um, but I think what they instilled on, in, in me was the sense of serving others. They're yeah. both dedicated to helping children to develop. Um, I, as a teenager, I was a, I was really, sports was my biggest thing. Um, I, was a, I was a rower, um, what the Americans were, who, who are listening will call crew. Yeah. I rode crew. <laughs> um, and I loved that sport and I found that I was, I was pretty good at it. And my engagement with the sport and the, as, I, as I became more serious and as I competed at a higher level, my awareness of the the, the psychological elements of, of sport became clearer and clearer. And I wanted to be a sports psychologist. Um, this would have been around the late, the late 90s. Um, and sports psychology wasn't really at that stage. Uh, you, know, you wouldn't find every sports club had a sports psychologist. Um, it was much more of an academic field. And you had to study psychology first. So I studied psychology um, at University College in London. Um, carried on, carried on rowing seriously during that time. Um, so I had this both kind of academic engagement with psychology, but also managed trying to manage my own mind as a as an athlete. Um, and it, doing that work actually is when I first became, or doing that course was when I first became really aware of mental health as an as an as a professional discipline. I had a sense of what mental health was. Um, I, knew, I, knew, I knew that each of us could struggle with emotions, um, but it was clinical psychology as a profession um, wasn't really something I'd thought about before. And it was just really, I was interested in, um, it was around the same time that The Beautiful Mind, if you remember that movie with Russell Crowe came yeah. out. So I was fascinated by um, the extremes of mental health, how things, what, what would happen, what happened to us when um, our mind really started to play tricks on us so I decided to follow that as my as my career and did a master's degree in neuropsychology which is really understanding how the how the brain is involved in process of thinking um, and then followed a career path into clinical psychology because mental health was my was my main area of interest um, and qualified as a clinical psychologist but didn't actually stay working in um, in the national health service in this country for for very long so I've talked for quite a long time. <laughs> interject. Um, 
You, you talk about the connection between sports and psychology, which I think that is, I'm really interested about this because like a long time ago, well, not even that long time ago, uh, sports were thought just to be about performing within the court. I, I don't know if this is correct, but this was my assumption from looking at from afar. And I don't know what instigated that it was thought that there were more components to that, like also physically, like uh, massage and recovery and all of this, but also like looking at it from, a, from the mind perspective. And this seems to be happened, that happened around the same time when you got interested in this. What do you think was the reason that called attention to this aspect? Well, I mean, I'm not an expert in sports science. Um, so somebody would be able to give a much longer, longer history. But if you think of, of people within um, certainly my lifetime, I'm not absolutely sure of, of yours, but people who, where we questioned why they couldn't always perform the way that they were capable of. So a good example is, is John McEnroe, yeah. who was an amazing tennis player. At that time, the people thought was the world's most talented tennis player. Um, had those epic had those epic matches, but was known for his for his you know angry outbursts. So people and would have been talking behind the scenes as well as of course commentators and fans. Why can't this guy manage his behaviour on the court? And how's that impacting his his game? And just because there wasn't a field called sports psychology doesn't mean that those conversations weren't being had behind the behind the scenes, but just not formally and not as. Um, as well researched as they would be today. If you look, you, you were talking about recovery as well. Um, sports science as a discipline, helping people to think about what are the factors involved in athletic performance has a pretty long history, well into the, I, imagine, I think into the 70s, perhaps even, in, and ideas around um, getting the best out of physical performance would have gone long before that as well. So again, the, the thinking about elements other than what you do on the pitch or the court has been part of sport for our you know for, for generations but just perhaps sat with the coach or the team manager or the athlete themselves and less so as a, as a professional um, sporting discipline I guess it would have been in the 90s and 2000s that it was much more common to have um, a, a broader range of professionals involved with a, with a sports team, um, whether they would be psychologists, physiologists, um, nutritionists. But prior to that, you would have had, of course, the physiotherapist on the team and the doctor on the team who would have been talking about those issues, even though they weren't kind of the data in people's day-to-day thinking. Does that make sense? Yeah. And the reason why I'm interested in sports is because I think that it leads the the public consciousness. I think that in sports, they are ahead of whatever eventually gets adopted into business practices. Uh, and I, I want to come back to something that you mentioned about John McEnroe, like when he was performing, he was thought to be like the most skilled at that time. And that seems to be like always like happening. Like right now, uh, Serena Williams is thought to be like the best at the time. And can that continue going on? Or is there a point where we reach like a, a law of diminishing returns? How more can the performance of the human body as an athlete increase? 
Wow. Probably you ask a hundred different physiology experts and you'll, you'll, you might not have a hundred different answers, but you'll, <laughs> you'll have a lot of answers. And we just look at the things that we are, I guess, really prime examples. The, the world record of the 100 meter sprint. But because the thing is that right now, it seems that we have the best performers ever on every single, um, every single activity. And, and I, just, I just wonder, why is it that? Is it because of technology? Is it because of psychology? Is it because of the human body? It's well, a, there, I think there's a whole different reasons. The one, the one thing that we've done in, in the UK, and it's by no means unique to the UK, is actually gone out to try and find people who have great potential. Now, if I look at my, if I look at my own sport, when I was in my early 20s, there were, there were some programs that started to, to, to take place where, where coaches were going out into schools who had no rowing crew at all and testing young people to basically identify people who were um, tall, much taller than I am, <laughs> um, who had natural power, much more natural power than I have, um, who had other physical attributes that you could, where you could predict, for example, how effective an athlete would they be when they've, when they've grown into adulthood. There's one very good example of, of that. His name is uh, Mohamed Sabihi. Um, I can't remember how many Olympic medals that he's won, but he's got at least two gold medals in the Olympics. Um, he, he started rowing at the club that I was, I was a member of just after university. I mean, phenomenally powerful athletes. A great example of, you were talking about grit earlier, a great mm -hmm. example of somebody who works incredibly hard and is very passionate about his, about his sports. Real um, ambassador for sport in, in this country, not just for, not just for rowing. Um, he was, at the time he was found, he was playing on the school basketball team, I think. He would have been, you know, he, he may have been a brilliant basketball player if he'd have carried on in that sport. We'll never know. But he was identified as being somebody who could be, you know, absolutely one of the world's best in that sport. And I think if you look at what football clubs are doing with trying to identify um, young people early in their career who have amazing potential, they don't always get it right, but the amount of time and effort that goes into it, you will find... There's, there's, there's a much broader pool of athletes being brought into different sports, um, which means that we're finding the, or, or people in sport are finding the potential rather than allowing the potential just to find the sport. So that will be a factor. It's like talent identification in, in business. It's the same, it's under the same principle. It's finding people who could, you know, who could really rise to the top. Training methodologies. Um, training programs that were that were happening in different sports 10 years ago 20 years ago people might look at today and say there's no way you're going to get the best out of an athlete for a long period of time with that kind of that kind of program so there's there's some endurance sports for example that have gone from every session being incredibly hard to identifying a, a training zone where you get the best physiological change for the least amount of damage So training methodologies change. Um, professionalism, that the amount of time that a player can, in, in most sports, can put into honing their skills, now compared to 50 years ago, or even, even 20 years ago, is, is, much, is much more. Um, so all of those factors, 
And then you add in psychology to the mix and helping people to sustain their best performances for as long as they, as long as they can. Um, and then you add in competition to the mix. If you, if you look at the, a good example at the moment in, in this country is Erling Haaland, who's a player who's just joined Manchester City Football Club, who is at the moment scoring in every match that he's played in so far, I think. Now, that's going to challenge the other clubs to raise their game to defend against him. So that's going to increase performance as well. So the, 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 the competition between people who are performing at such a high level, I think, then takes people to the, to the next level. But that doesn't mean that there's no physiological limit to what humans can, can achieve. It's just I don't think we know what it is yet in some sports. Yeah, and that's, that's exciting. <laughs> but uh, many things that I want to talk about what you just mentioned, but um, I want to go back a bit to continue in the sports arena. Um, I, I remember hearing stories, for example, about uh, Michael Jordan smoking before performing like brilliantly in the NBA Finals. That is just something that would be unthinkable today. Like when you are preparing for the biggest match in your career, you probably should be doing yoga or I don't know, like something <laughs> more performance-based. But arguably, the performance of Jordan may even be better than anything that the newer athletes can do. How, how, how do we account for that talent, innate talent, and everything that comes to enhance like little aspects? I think that's something that you also talked about like just prior to this. Well, I mean, Jordan's probably a good example of someone who was of course in his era was amazing and as an as an athlete was phenomenally talented you know his his ability to move at that speed but be his size his agility but also his the length of his limbs not many people have ever had and of course you're thinking probably of the last dance the the the, yeah. the, the netflix well, but, but i i remember watching that in real time yeah. so when when actually that was happening i was seeing that but it was good to see it behind the scenes to see yeah. what was happening which we were yeah, so, we so that's where we that's yeah. where we saw wasn't it jordan in the in the locker room beforehand smoking smoking cigars with his you know with his mates and If we could do an experiment where we brought that Jordan into the into the yeah, NBA actually, in 2022, would it make a difference, or would he still be dominating? I would argue he'd be a step behind. Yeah. Because he wasn't getting the very best that he could out of himself. Because he, he, even even for a phenomenally gifted athlete, smoking before a before a game. It's not going to warm up your, your physiological systems or your lungs in the way that they, that they need to be. So, and, and the other thing around, as around now compared to then is where the defenders, or was the defensive game that was built to try and take on Jordan as good as the defensive game in most teams now? I'd argue probably, probably not. So I think even, even the great Jordan would have to raise his game to play in the, play in the NBA today. And I just think also the... the um, The group around players now 
I have some experience of working with within sports teams and a player who was whether it was drinking the night before a game you know, I, I love I love rugby and I've done some work inside rugby decades ago even before international matches the teams would drink together the night before the before the game now that's that's policed by the players themselves you know if a player is drunk before before the night before a game the other Teammates are just not going to stand for it. Um, what happens after a game is, of course, sometimes a different a different story. Um, but I think I just don't think somebody like a like a Jordan would get away with it in the same in the same way now. Yeah, he would have to step up his game. I mean, we'll never find the answer to this. But this is a bar discussion. Yeah, he, had, he had Steve Kerr and his team there, yeah. who was, you know, again, if you look through that with that series, like one of the most important people in that success was Steve Kerr. But I can't imagine Steve Kerr, the manager now, or the head coach, or whatever his allow title him, is, yeah, yeah. would allow a Jordan to, to behave like that. And maybe that's why he became such a good coach, just to be around Jordan and to see how, how to deal with different talents. Because the other thing that we haven't talked about, we've talked about examples of the, the peak. You can think of LeBron James, you can think of Jordan, you can think of um, Usain Bolt in athletics. My example of Mo, Mosby in, in rowing, who physically were just gifted athletes mm. but then you have a player in a team like a Steve Kerr who's not contributing through physical capacity he's incredibly skillful of course and, and athletically brilliant but really wasn't better than the people around him but had the vision of the of the court had the ability to to, to manage the team on the court and to manage and to be a leader off the court really well suited for the role that he's doing today and probably not surprising that he hasn't limited his his public persona just to talking about basketball but to talking talking about society in general I mean, the last point about sports because this is something that interests me a lot it's said that uh, LeBron James and you talked about LeBron James he's had an amazing long career I think 20 seasons And the reason why he's had this long career is because he's, he's said to spend around 1 million, 1.5 million on his body. And that is something that it's difficult for someone like me to wrap my hand around. And I heard a comment of another player, Giannis Antetokounmpo, who, what he said sounds more similar to what I would think. He said, like, I would never do that. It's something that is unthinkable to a player who grew up in a, in a humble, uh, as a poor immigrant in, in Greece and this I think that applies to the business world and just to professionals in general beyond sport. I think that the thought of uh, focusing on performance, psychology, mental health is something that for the majority of people outside of privileged positions they don't have the luxury to think about that. I agree. Then there, I mean, of course, LeBron James spends that amount of money partly because those people are working with LeBron James, so they're charging him that amount of amount of money. <laughs> okay. Um, he could arguably, I'd say almost definitely, get the same level of support, potentially, the the same level of outcome for not quite that much that much money. But take the take the the whether it's one million dollars, two million dollars, or $200,000 out of the equation for the moment. You're, you're right. Somebody like that who has access to that kind of wealth is able to bring in and buy in the, the, 
the the best or at least their perception of what the best is and to be really well advised um he sees all of that as an as an investment because i don't know the name of the the, the player that you mentioned but i guess what lebron james would say is look at what i'm able to do in the world as a result of the longevity and performance that i've had on the court and he does lebron james does as i understand it an awful lot of work with different with different causes um but to your to your other point about the availability of whether it's um pure information about what what good rehabilitation or recovery or psychology looks like whether it's access to to people certainly individual face-to-face or somebody working with you in the gym for example um even at the lower end of the price range that's out of the out of the um financial capability of much of the of the world i think what is happening is that there's of course a far greater access to information than there than there ever has been before so if you wanted to uh, read books on mental health how to manage your mental health if you wanted to um, understand how to how to exercise for um, to get the best out of yourself in a limited amount of time. If you wanted to learn about the benefits of sleep, you can read books, you can watch YouTube, you know, a really top level academics and, and practitioners on YouTube talking about that. You can, you can access information in, in apps that previously you would have had to pay an individual to do. I, I, do, I do think that it's more accessible, but I think that in certain cultures, it's still not encouraged. Or it's not uh, something that you would normally think uh, that is something that you could do. You could you could even know that this is something that uh, LeBron James does, but you see, like that's not for me. I'm just a professional who has to make uh, ends meet here. In so that's also like the the culture. And already the biggest the biggest challenge that when I when I talk to people about my own areas of interest around um, sustaining energy and sustaining your performance and looking after yourself the the biggest factor that people people talk about whether they are a ceo or somebody right at the beginning of their of of their career is i don't have enough time so even if i've got the financial ability i haven't got the time to be able to do it so you're you're right there are there are cultural elements there are elements of um the time that people have available which i think are changing so my first Um, step into the work that I do today um, where my work is is not clinical work but is more organizational and leadership work was um, working with a company that really were the pioneers of of resilience um, training in at least in in the UK so helping people to manage their um, emotions and mental health at at work Um, and the the founders of that company we're really going in and talking to to people in in HR and in businesses about this emerging challenge of of mental health in the in the workplace. This was about just over ten years ago, and the conversation around mental health since then. I know it's not in every country, but it's far different. There's yeah. far more of an acknowledgement that that to be able to perform 
at our best and contribute to our organizations, we need to be able to manage our, our mental health. Um, there's far greater acknowledgement in, and I think it probably goes, again, at least in uh, the UK, much of Europe, the US, in Australia, the acknowledgement that people can be really high performers and also struggle with mental health is, is, is far more understood than certainly when I began, began my career. So I think things are, things are changing, um, but that still doesn't, as you say, help the people who are just struggling just to keep up. And some of these things that you're talking about were things that I came to the realization because I had more time and also because I guess because of my age, I was confronted with certain limitations that I, at a younger age, I, I probably didn't perceive that I had even if I had them. But I am curious to think how it, how it would have changed my life, my career or everything had I paid attention to this when I was even functioning at a higher uh, at a higher performance. Me too. Uh, and even, even when I knew about some of these things as, a, as an athlete, I don't think I paid the attention to rehabilitation or what, or what in sport they sometimes call prehabilitation, looking after stopping potential injuries happening before they do, um, recovery, nutrition, as, uh, nearly as much as I, as I sh could have done or, or should have done, I don't know if I would have been much much better in my chosen support, support if I if I had done, but I but I didn't. Um, nowadays in life, for different reasons, you have to pay more attention to those things. Yeah, and because you are confronted with your limitations, but my question is, who is responsible of this? Is it the individual? Is it the employer? Is it the the government? Who is responsible to encourage? individuals to look at these aspects is it a joint effort so yes i think it's a joint effort i mean without getting too sidetracked into into <laughs> politics i think it's the role of government to give people the best chance of thriving in their life physically socially and psychologically so it has to be it has to be part of of government and if you at least in i know that this country best thinking about well-being versus just solving illnesses is I mean, there are people who, who spend their entire career working on that in, in our services so it's, it's already on the agenda of some governments I know the people often use the example of um, of the country of Bhutan yeah. which has the, has the measure of gross national happiness rather than you know, gross domestic product there are governments around the world that are thinking very seriously about people's, people's well-being and people's you know, social and psychological thriving and growth. So I think it's, the role of, it's one of the roles of government. In organizations, if people can't sustain their well-being and their energy, then we can't expect them to be able to perform at their best and we therefore can't expect the organization to be at its best. And there are organizations that take people for a short time, they work incredibly hard, they get burnt out and they, and they leave. And that's almost seen as part of the, part of the process. Yeah. But I think, it's quite, I think it's quite sad. I don't think you're getting the best out of people. So, and and that, that's why, you know, at, at least thinking about well-being in organizations is the, at least in, in the big corporates, is the, is the norm now. 
rather than the exception. It's not, it's not weird for a HR director to say, well, HR is about more than just helping people to perform in their job. It's also about helping people to be there to be their best. But of course, many of the things that, that help us to sustain our health and well-being, whether that's around our recovery habits, our, our sleep, our diet, um, our use of or use or not use of alcohol and other, and, and other drugs, our physical exercise, even if you just think of those few things, they're done by the individual. Nobody can, nobody can move my legs without me, going for a, without me going for a run. Yeah. So they're, they're, it's, a, it's a role for, for everyone. But I think it's, they're things that make people feel at their best. So they're things that people should want to do as well. I, I've recently, since the beginning of the year, I've lost 32 kilos. And it's something that it didn't, it didn't, I actually don't know how I did it because I, I kept moving the goal. I kept going and I kept moving the goal and, and losing more. And I imagine that had I started with the initial big goal of 32 kilos, I wouldn't have done it. But the reason why I mentioned this is because I feel that the world is, is not meant to support uh, people who are overweight. I felt that the whole world was like fighting against me, but I never felt that someone was like encouraging me to, to, to lose weight and to be like that. I, I felt that it was just an aggressive approach of the world towards me. Mm. And then when I lost the weight, I realized that, oh my God, like the world is much better and it encourages people to be fit. I don't know if this uh, makes sense. Well, it, it does make sense. Um, and, and what you managed to achieve in that short space of time is, I mean, it's amazing. And, and I, I don't, and actually when you were, when we had the session, you mentioned something about the book, about the eating. Uh, what was that book that you mentioned that the whole conclusion was eat less meat? Uh, uh, no, so it was, it was um, called Food Rules yeah. by a journalist called Michael Pollan. And he says you can, because, because as you know, probably as you, as you were thinking about how do you lose weight, that that conversation, if you go online, is so, there's so many mixed messages. I mean, it's, it's not anything around my area of expertise, so I don't really even, even touch on it. But what, what Michael Pollan said, it was some years ago now, was you can really, you can, you can describe good diet in seven words. Eat food, mostly plants, not too much. And that's Maybe what, I got the order wrong. And that's what I did, exactly like that. But I don't think that it was ever explained to me in a way like, that it was just the world seemed to be aggressive towards me and it was not someone like trying to explain that but that's exactly what I did eat less more vegetables and just be more active that's it and there are a whole load of reasons as, as you'll know and again this is way out of my area of even study let alone let alone practical work but why people struggle with with weight um and that's before you have the conversation of, of society's attitudes towards, towards weight. Um, so for some people, it's not, it's, it's not as simple as, as what we've just, we've just described. And, and I think that's where people really experience some of the, some of the stigma 
and people's assumptions about how they live their life, which are often inaccurate. Yeah. Um, so there, there's there's good reasons why there are much more specialist ways of helping people who are, who are struggling and, and want to lose to lose weight. But for many people, there's a, there's a significant element of of lifestyle and food choices and managing their appetite, which they'll you know they'll admit to. Um, but it's a much bigger topic than, than that. But the reason why I mentioned this is because I think that once I've lost the weight, I felt like I had access, like I was invited into the club of society, which before I felt that I was not. Mm-hmm. And I think that had I realized this a long time ago, maybe I would have like done something more actively to become part of the club before. I just didn't realize how it affected my whole life from... I knew how it affected my life personally. I didn't know how it affected my life in society and in career, like in profession, everywhere. And to not, to not feel accepted, and that wasn't just made up by you. Yeah. It wasn't that you, were, you thought a particular way, then you lost the weight, and then you realized that you were, you were wrong. There are many ways in which our um, society, I think, and I, I'm not speaking from personal experience, um, but can feel hostile. Yeah. to people who are, are carrying more weight than others you know, let alone stepping into a stepping into a gym for example and how you you know how you might feel and how people will say that I, I you know even if people are not I feel like they're looking at me and judging me yeah that's a horrible thing and people why would people put themselves into that uncomfortable position what we've probably societally across the world got to get or got to keep on improving is helping people to be to be as healthy as possible regardless of what they you know what ha- what the number happens to be when they stand on a, on a scale and helping people to feel included in um, it doesn't need to be sports clubs but in f- you know physically healthy environments and I want to go back to something that you mentioned at the beginning about talent Um, I often feel that there's a lot of conversations from organizations talking about uh, how they recruit the best talent, but I don't really believe that that's the case. It often feels that organizations want to perpetuate the system of, we want someone who has been doing the same job that we want, perhaps for our biggest competitor, because we want them to do the, the same thing for us. And they don't look beyond the skills that may be transferable. They, they say that they do, but in my experience, that's, that's not the case. And when I, whenever I hear the discussion that there's a crisis with talent, like it actually makes me upset because there's so much talent out there, but how do you identify that talent? Like, like what the example you were mentioning about perhaps going and finding certain athletes with certain predispositions, physical or mental. How do you do that in an organization? Well, there's, there's many ways, and, and this is probably another situation where if you talk to a whole group of, of talent directors or talent managers, you they will hear say a range of different, yeah. different opinions. But and they will say that they do it, but in my experience, <laughs> it's not really the case. You know, there, there's, and for some organizations, it's easier than others. Because some organizations can go, for example, into, into schools, 
If you're, if you're in the software industry and you want to help um, grow the ability to code, for example, you can engage with the whole education systems. If you're in the alcohol industry, you can't do that for very good, for very good reasons. Um, but there's a question of the, of the age at which they start, because I think what you're talking about is that there's, there's just some people who, who never even come onto the agenda of organizations because they never even think about going into the university studies that would enable them to get that to get that next job so there's engaging with with um people in areas where you're struggling to find young talent for example so whether that's engaging with schools or universities or, or whatever most organizations would say that their their graduate schemes are designed to do exactly what you're what you're saying which is to find people who haven't got life experience who haven't got lots of of job skills but have the the willingness and the potential to learn and to give them the experience of a whole range of different parts of the organization so that they can find where they where they fit the trouble i think that a lot of organizations are experiencing now is that we tend not to stay with one organization yeah there was something like more from our parents' generation. Yeah. You would go and stay for one organization forever. Yeah. They give you a gold watch at the end. <laughs> <laughs> it's, so it's much less common to do now. So and there are whole there are whole consultancies that are that are helping organizations to identify, you know, when people apply for a for a job, so the job advert goes as, as widely as possible to identify people who might not have the done the exact same job in the competitor but have the capability to learn quickly. Um, so I think, I would say organizations are probably doing better than you Yeah, actually, I, I, I am probably a bit pessimist, and I'm sure I know some organizations do it, and I know that it's a practice that is growing. I don't still think that it's as widespread as it should be. There's many organizations just working like at the most basic talent identification, and I think that that's a big problem because there's so many people who are not given the opportunity for whatever reason, but they could be really talented in the role mm. if they were just given the opportunity and the trust. There's an author who's, whose work I, I love reading. His name is John Hagel. He ran something called Deloitte's Center for the Edge, and he's now, he's now a writer and a, and a consultant. He's had a very long Silicon Valley experience, and he talks about this idea of performance pressure and organizations, he's been talking about this for years, but organizations being under performance pressure, which means that their focus becomes more, more short-term and their thinking about the future is, is, is reduced. What happens when organizations come under performance pressure is they, they need to recruit people who can do the job tomorrow because they haven't got time to recruit you or me with different experiences and give us the time to, to learn. And... I think that the, the most forward-thinking organizations, even who are experiencing some of that need to deliver and the, the economic pressure or whatever else that they're facing, will have roles um, across different functions and in different countries, um, which they're using to bring people into the organization for them to, for them to learn. And when, they, when they've got those roles, what goes hand in hand with that is that they start interviewing and assessing people to see if they have the, the capability to learn and not worrying quite so much about 
what is their what was their job description from the last organization they were part of i think probably what we'd agree on is that that needs to be more on the agenda as as we're living through a period where technologies and demographics and um, politics is changing so quickly and people's needs are changing so quickly um, and lastly um, when you when you have like these seminars that the ones that we just had here at the at Oxford what is one of the main takeaways that you get when you're talking to a diverse group of professionals from different experiences that perhaps help you to look at a problem in a different way It's a really good question, and I, the easy thing to say is that whenever I have a conversation with people about my particular area of interest, it changes and affects the way that I, the way that I think of it. Um, if the, the harder example is, is the session that we did this week, which was only a couple of days ago, and I almost feel like I was talking about in there the need for time to reflect, <laughs> and I feel like I haven't actually had the time to, yeah. to reflect yet. But you were a group of, of chiefs of staff from a really diverse range of organizations. We've had a really wide-ranging conversation today, but I was talking specifically about um, the challenge of sustaining our energy in life and work. And I very often go into those conversations wondering whether it will be a group of people who think, well, I've heard this all before. There's nothing, you haven't said anything new to, to me. And I'm sure there were people in the group that might have thought that. But what I, what I had from the conversations was that that topic and the challenge of um, people feeling overloaded and people feeling like they're carrying too much to be really able to pay attention to um, their, their personal well-being and energy is a really present challenge across a whole range of different industries. I could think of examples of people from public systems and from private companies and from small startups and from bigger organizations who I spoke to during that during that session who were saying it's really it's really present issue for us yeah um and which which makes me think that there's there's lots of work to be done probably if you asked me in a week's time I'd have something more no. wise to say <laughs> no but I like I really and the reason why I approach you to talk to you is because I kept really thinking about the, the discussion that we had because it seems that it seems that I'm new to this discussion but it's something that I'm thinking about like all the time now and I just want to learn more and I really want to thank you for your time and I know that it was a really wide-ranging discussion But I really enjoyed it and I really uh, am glad to hear your perspective on all of these variety of issues. It was great fun. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you, Gavin. Cheers. This was the World Alpha 3 project. I hope you loved it. And you dig it.